Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hi, and welcome to episode 14 of the Tube to Table podcast, Common Traps in Tube Weaning. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the things that get people stuck on this journey from feeding tube to family table and a little bit about what to do about it. Um, I'm joined again by my partner in crime, Heidi. Heidi, how are you doing? I'm great, Jenny. How are you? I'm good. You were off weaning a little guy last week when Bree and I recorded. How did he do? Oh, he was great. He was actually a lot of fun. He and his mom both. He was um, just really ready, which is is so nice and in just the right spot um, and was ready ready to roll. So he did an amazing job, which is, as you and I both know, it's not always a smooth process. No. Um so this was this was fun. Well, it's kind of related to what we're going to talk about today, that when you do yeah. things in the correct order, when you really work hard and spend some time sitting in the foundational aspects of this whole process of tube weaning, the, the final stages feel easier and are more of a straight line. And so what mm-hmm. we're going to do today is kind of talk you through what those foundational pieces are. What we're going to do is we're going to go through each phase of that pyramid that we created, the infographic that describes how to overcome feeding tube dependency and feeding aversion, and talk about at each level what the common breakdowns are, where Mm -hmm. people get stuck. And I think it goes, uh, it would be helpful to just note, (laughs) as Heidi reminded me this morning, the most common thing is that people try to do it out of order. They try to skip some of the foundational pieces and work on skill or other other things a little prematurely. And so just a quick note that that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a really yeah. common one. I don't know. Is that, isn't that something you often see when we get a, a new kiddo that we're working with? Usually they're, they've got some of the pieces right, but they've skipped ahead, right? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's definitely true. And it's, it's true in a sneaky way because it feels like skipping steps is preparing. Mm-hmm. It feels like you're helping them get ready. But what people don't realize, and we'll go through this a little bit more clearly, uh, you know, in each stage, but probably the most common one of skipping steps is done in feeding therapy. Yeah. And the intentions of feeding therapists are to do a good job and to help kids feel prepared and to help kids feel ready. So it doesn't seem like you're adding pressure by doing some of those things out of order, but that's probably the most common um mixed message that kids get. It's the most common place for adults to get stuck with kids because it really does feel like help. Yeah, it does. It feels like it should help. So um, what we'll do is we're going to go through each phase and talk about the common things to look out for um, in terms of obstacles so that you, when you're faced with something that's really challenging in your process, you can get back to that pyramid Mm -hmm. and, and work your way down to, and look at each level and figure, um, figure out what went wrong. So the first level in our pyramid, um, the first foundational thing that we work on is first do no harm. So essentially what we're encouraging parents to do at this point 
is to stop any practices that may be done by in the family or by the medical team to that could be complicating the child's relationship with food and reinforcing their feeding tube dependency. Heidi, can you talk a little bit about some common things that we see? Yeah. Some of the most common things, this is what we go through in our evaluations a lot of times with families, um, making sure that you've looked at food allergies, looking at things that cause vomiting. Um, and, and we realize that that's a harder question and some of it, um, some of it doesn't get completely resolved because feeding tubes are hard. Um, but really overfeeding, you know, vomiting after each meal, holding kids down and forcing them to eat, (laughs) you know, some of those really obvious, um, things that make kids cry, make kids want to leave the room. (laughs) All of those really obvious things are, are the first things that, that we address. Yeah. And, and it's good to mention that any medical things were looked at in our evaluation process, but we encourage people to take a step back when they're looking at a child and their feeding skills and look at the whole child, because oftentimes people look at the mouth or the skills that Heidi was referring to earlier, and they don't look at how maybe a medical intervention like the schedule that the child is on or the amount that the child is getting may be contributing to how they relate to food because they're so uncomfortable. So that's, that's true. I had, um, it's, it's good to remember that anything, anything that's causing a child to have a negative association with food feeding or even the table really, or high chair in in the case of little people (laughs) is a good, um, a good thing to stop doing. And then that the next most obvious step above that, once you've eliminated those harmful things and once you've eliminated them, it can be really helpful to just sit there for a second to just stop the bad things Mm -hmm. before you start working too hard. Cause we all, we also see frequently that people rush these foundational phases and they're really, it it needs a kids need time and rest once these negatives have been Mm -hmm. stopped or are stopping to really feel trusting, which is what this whole next stage is about. So the, the things that we talk about that build trust around food is you have to accept a f- food refusal. So if your child's refusing food, it has to be accepted, you know, without judgment. <laughs> you have to be able to accept that your child's going to have no, no food at the table without commenting on it, like you didn't have anything or coercing. Um, and then this break that we talked about. Sometimes a break without work is really huge. It is. And I think where people get stuck in these stages is in the past, for most people, success at wherever they are means the kids start eating. Mm-hmm. In this stage, success doesn't usually mean the kids start eating. Success at this stage means their shoulders are more relaxed. They're not tense all the time. They're really subtle. And most families will say that they didn't realize how hard it was, you know, that their little 18 month old was in a state of constant discomfort, was in a state of, you know, stress all the time. Their shoulders were up. They were on high alert all the time. And you don't, that's something that you don't realize until it goes away. Right. And so it's hard to success see. at this stage. It is, it's hard to see. Um, and success at this stage is comfort and rest, which doesn't usually mean more intake. And also is really hard on parents because it feels like nothing. And yet it's one of the biggest somethings (laughs) that you can do. It feels like nothing. It's, I I think you said, Heidi, the, the, your quote was the work is the rest. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's so true. And play too. play kind of tends to come after rest, but in this stage with building trust that the child's exploration of food 
whether it be play mm-hmm. or actually eating it, which is rarely happening in this phase when you have a tube dependent yeah. child, very rarely. Um, when they're playing with food, handling food, being around food, helping with food prep, throwing food away, whatever the case may be at their age and in your family situation, the, the way you know it's okay is if they're directing it. We're not talking about like, yes. you know, doing crazy things with food, but that they're the ones that are showing you that they want to play with food, that you're not encouraging right. them or coercing them or cheerleading them into it. Your job at this stage as a parent is, is protection, really. Yeah. Your job is putting yourself in the mode of protecting them from too high of expectations and um, too much work, too much mm-hmm. pressure. That's your job. And it feels like a job, but it's much less clearly defined than do seven exercises with these things. It's a lot harder and it feels like a reversal probably from some of the things you've been doing now. But again, the word rest, the word trust, the word, I mean, sometimes I just think just, just breathe, just take a break, just step back a little bit and let everybody have a minute to be a family for a minute. Yeah. And this is, it's tough to do, but it, it's so true. Like just being together is is the name of the game here. Being together without expectations or stress around the meal, even if nothing's happening at the table, nothing's happening around food for this, this kiddo that's tube dependent. Another thing I'd just like to point out really briefly at this phase, again, we're spending a little more time at the bottom of this pyramid because it's the key. It's the most important part for success in our, in our opinion, um, is that Prior to this, prior to the tube weaning process, most parents had to put their trust in the medical providers to keep their kids safe and healthy. That's why the most cases, that's why the tube was needed. In most cases, there's other medical things that they really needed their medical, they had to put their instincts aside for a moment or their... You know, they didn't know the way out of it, and that's nobody's fault. When you have, your child has a medical diagnosis or a severe feeding challenge, you, you need to kind of <laughs> let the medical providers take the wheel, and that's hard. But then once you're in the swing of it, mm-hmm. it can be also really hard to trust yourself to take the wheel back. And the other nice thing about resting and playing here is that it rebuilds that attachment around food. The attachment's obviously there in other areas, <laughs> but, but it rebuilds that connection around food without pressure for both parent and child because you while you weren't the person that maybe was able to lead your child through the cardiac surgery or <laughs> through the tube placement or all those things that you, we need a doctor to do you are going to be the person that leads your child from the tube dependency to eating and so that this trust piece gets overlooked in traditional therapies often parents are asked to do things that degrade trust Um, force their kids to eat, coerce their kids to eat, be out of the room while someone else does those things. And we can't skip trust. Every, we, we need the parents and the children need to trust themselves and each other. And I think one last point at this place is that a lot of people actually do get this, but forget how long it takes to build trust. That if you've ever been in a relationship that's been broken by unkind words or betrayal or, lack of understanding. This is a relationship and yeah. you know how long it takes you to trust somebody again once trust has been broken. It takes more than one pleasant interaction Experience. for you to start True. trusting somebody again. So it takes a lot of time. And even if it's not your fault that it was broken, it's it's part of your job now is to make sure that that is in a healed, strong, sturdy place before we put any additional weight 
yeah. on that relationship. And the length it's- of time to build trust and to heal some of these lower lower level kind of things that have happened, it, the, the early things that happen with kids that are tube fed. Um, it's The length of time is different for every child, um, honestly, and, and dependent on so many factors, but it also doesn't take forever. And you can, most parents just know when Mm -hmm. they're there. It just feels different. We get the message like that just felt so different. I haven't tried feeding him in six months, but he just seems so ready. And, or it just, there's a difference in how it feels. So don't give up if you don't have that feeling. Um, Just keep at it because it comes. And if you need help, there's help out there. We're around. (laughs) And then, um, so this kind of leads us into, so once that trust has been started to be established and established in a good, strong way, the next phase is creating responsive family mealtime. So once a child trusts the food and the feeder to not hurt them, to not be, to respect their boundaries and accept their refusals and understand how they're feeling without being pushy, (laughs) The next phase is to create mealtime habits that will allow the children to explore food when they're ready, when they've discovered the upper level skills. And mm-hmm. so, again, this is another phase, the creating for responsive family mealtimes, which is the next one, where there may not be any eating here, um, but what there is, is togetherness and then some. So, Heidi, can you talk a little bit about some of the principles that help us help people yeah. in, in at the family table understand how to be more responsive? One of the things I always think about when I'm creating responsive family mealtimes is the, the family mealtime should reflect the family that's having it. Mm-hmm. So if you're a family that eats out, then you should be eating out. Eating out with kids isn't always fun, so that might need to, that might need to shift a little bit. Most people, once their kids hit, you know, depending on their child, not all two year olds are restaurant goers. No. So being realistic with your um, with your little one's energy level and those kinds of things, but don't feel the pressure to make your family mealtime look like somebody else's family mealtime. Number one, the next thing is, does everybody want to be there? You don't want to go and be part of a family mealtime or or a mealtime situation that there are people who don't want to be there. So making it enjoyable for everybody. And it's just time together, having conversation, food happens to be there, but it's not necessarily the main point. Although some families are very food driven, some cultures are very food driven. And so there is a lot of that. Um, But it's really just enjoyable and everybody gets to participate. And the kids at this stage look like they're happy to be there. They're in the game and they're being social with everybody else. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that every mealtime always feels great to everybody, but the, the, the long right. <laughs> sum of everything is that it's a positive experience and that it's not a constant power struggle. So some of the common pitfalls that people fall into is they fall into doing things like even though they're, they maybe cognitively know that their child shouldn't be eating, they do things like over act how much they're enjoying their food like oh this broccoli is amazing Mm, so (laughs) yummy and then like you know it's like acting like how's your dinner dad and that um often even though it's done in a really loving way from really loving intentions creates strange messages for the child because most of the time they know you're acting and if you're paying more attention and doing more work to convince the message isn't Mm, yum. The message is work. 
So if you're working hard to put on a show for your kid, the message that they're going to get isn't the message you intended usually. It's the, it's the effort that you put in. And when kids see that you're putting in a great effort, they worry that it's not a pleasant thing. We put a lot of effort into helping our kids take medicine. We put a lot of effort into <laughs> helping our kids go to the doctor when they're afraid of it. And so they know that if you're like jumping through hoops to try to make everything sound amazing and delicious, that it's work. So that's one thing. And then um, the other thing is just having um, kind of knowing your lane, <laughs> knowing what your roles and responsibilities are as a parent and being clear about what your children's are. So again, this fundamental principle of Ellen Satter's, the um, division of responsibility that we've talked about and we'll link again to because it's that important in our show notes, really essentially says that as a parent, you determine when when your family eats, where they eat, and how much food is served, or what food is served, rather. And your child decides if they're going to eat at all, and if so, how much. So just kind of knowing those roles, and if you feel like you might be stuck around this phase, if you feel like you've got the trust down and you've stopped the harmful stuff, but you feel like this may be the place where you're stuck, then it wouldn't hurt to look at those roles and responsibilities, because they they are some of the more common things that get um, mixed up. Mm -hmm. And so, and to, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Jenny, just to, to check your expectations in this place is to remind yourself that responsive family mealtimes doesn't necessarily mean intake, doesn't no. necessarily mean anything is going in their mouth, or if it does go in, it doesn't necessarily stay in, Yeah, that this is about this setting, the environment, the structure. Um, and, and I think the most common thing is being understandably, but visibly frustrated when there's nothing yeah. going in the mouth. Um, and, that, and it's okay to be frustrated, yeah. but the visibly is. frustrated is hard. And you might need to right. have like with your partner or yourself, you might need to have like a backup plan, like go wash the dishes <laughs> and right. like, the, you know, let a tear fall if it's really hard to see that there's no food going in, but just try to keep in, keep it in check around the kids. And likewise, the opposite of that, that is true. It's, it's the same principle is over talking about food and over talking about the experience and the fact that they are or are not eating is just as big of a problem as not talking about, you know, like just mm -hmm. avoiding, uh, you know, avoiding the topic altogether. You want the kids to be at the table. So giving yourself a chance to have those feelings, it's okay. It's hard. It's so hard as a parent to do this, but we want to keep the mealtimes as low key as possible. And so we've talked about this in the past, having some conversation starters, having some things to talk about, maybe considering playing some music in the background while you're eating, just to kind of distract people. I know in my family, like a routine conversation start, like when we have everybody at the table, which is rare because of practices and everything. But when all three boys are at the table and my husband and I are at the table, um, we do tend to go because we want to hear about everybody. It's like so rare to get out same place. We want to hear about everybody's day. And so we tend to talk about the same things, um, like go through the same conversation. And some people do like, what was the high point of your day? What was the low point of your day? Um, but there's other things that you can talk about too. And so we'll link to some of those great ideas that other people have come up with, <laughs> not us. I, I will say that toddlers are probably hard to have conversations yeah. at the table with, yep. um, especially if there's communication challenges along with um, feeding challenges, which, yeah. which can be the Common. place, but mm -hmm. they love to be a part of it. So it's worth your time to look a little bit. And, you know, some, some people have done things like best worst, or did you see any trucks today? Or yeah, um, colors. try to we avoid colors. Yeah, colors. Our toddler. yeah. Like what did yeah. you see that was yellow <laughs> <laughs> or 
I saw a yellow, you know, lemon at the store today or something, you know, it's fine. You can, you can make it similar to what you would be talking about if they were a big mm-hmm. kid, because you're talking about something that actually happened in your day. And remember, this is enjoyment. I think that's another place where people get stuck is mealtimes can become an interrogation because you don't feel like you know necessarily what to say. So they don't have to get the right answer. This is a, a time of enjoyment. It is. And, and you know, we spend so. a little bit more time on this talking about this phase because it's, it's essential to the success of the next three. And we also know that mm-hmm. creating responsive family mealtimes are essential to long-term health and a healthy relationship with food. And so that's why we kind of <laughs> really talk about families. it. Yes, healthy families. That's true. It's so related to the healthy relationships. So, um, you know, just keeping in mind these principles of, um, you know, healthy roles and responsibilities, enjoyment and togetherness. It shouldn't feel fake, but it also shouldn't feel like work. And it's okay if there's silence sometimes. And it's okay if the grownups are talking about something else and the kids are being silly sometimes. It doesn't, you don't have to be on the whole time. You shouldn't be. It should feel enjoyable to you too as a parent. Um, it, unfortunately, that peaceful feeling with toddlers at the table usually doesn't last for long, but you should have a moment or two at every meal where it feels really enjoyable for everyone. So when we talk about the next one, I think, again, the discovering internal drives to eat is the next stage. And I think that's where a lot of people feel like they they get stuck. There's a lot of things that happen there. My guess, a lot of times when people get stuck here, they actually are stuck at a lower True. place. Yeah. Or they didn't spend enough time in that lower place or they skipped it entirely because they didn't know it was important. And now we're in the middle of the trying to discover internal drives to eat. But actually, you need to go back and say, do they trust mealtimes? Do they trust people? Do they, you know, pull, if you're stuck in the internal drives to eat phase, you're cutting calories and things aren't changing and they're not moving. My first piece of advice would be to go back to the pyramid and see if you, if those phases had been, if they were in a place of trust, if they were in a place of discovering, of family mealtimes, going back to the beginning and saying, where, where is our family really? Yeah, and just a quick reminder here that the the basic internal drives to eat for children and for most of us as, as adults, hunger is one of them, togetherness is another, curiosity and pleasure. Those are the internal drives for eating that we should be looking for. And so the, another really common thing that I, you just hit on briefly is that people think hunger is the internal drive to eat. And if they get their kid hungry, like you're saying, Heidi, without focusing on these lower three things, they think then they should be able to eat. Well, we skipped three meals and they still didn't eat anything. There's My, my kid doesn't have a hunger drive. We hear that all the time. But none of the, the, pre, the previous three stages have been really focused on for any long-term period of time. And so they shouldn't. They shouldn't. Hunger shouldn't be enough. So these discovering internal drives to eat can be discovered, but they have to be discovered after those three things. And so um, just checking Mm -hmm. in a common error here is getting confused between the internal and external drives to eat. So not only doing it out of order and rushing this phase by introducing hunger, but also getting stuck on external drives to eat, like reward. It's a really common one. And a lot of us grew up, if not in our own families, 
you know, getting rewarded with dessert or playtime if we finished our meal. But also in culture, we see that we see that in movies and stuff all the time, television programs. And so it's it's easy to get stuck thinking about the external drives or getting it's easy to kind of after you've built all the trust and created family meal times to slip a little bit here and to get confused and start to introduce some external drives to eat. So just mm-hmm. catch yourself. If you, if you've checked in on these first three layers, you think you're at this layer and that's where things are going wrong. Hunger is an important one. So you may need to play with the drive to eat through hunger by adjusting tube delivered nutrition. But if you've done that and you're still stuck, just make sure that you're not accidentally working on, there's not mixed messages around the external drive mm-hmm. to eat to eat, that you're not sending them a message that their body isn't to be trusted. And then I think the other really common problem at this point or common trap or pitfall or whatever is not recognizing baby steps Mm -hmm. is they start getting hungry. They start reaching for the food more often or they do it once. And the next day we expect them to put a whole bite in their mouth and swallow it of remembering that this is a small baby step process. I think Jenny, you're really good at saying we wouldn't expect kids to start walking immediately. You know, first they cruise and they take a few steps and fall on their bottom. Like there's, there's a progression of skills. And if we're not recognizing those tiny little steps towards eating and feeling like a failure, if it doesn't happen immediately. Yeah. I love that. I, I, that's so true. And, and the, the, the thing about, um, it's starting slowly is that the other thing is kids, we, we are, we have to be careful about praising children. We've talked about this in previous episodes for how much they're eating or the fact that they chose to eat because it sends the wrong message. It, it just sends the message that you're good enough if you do it. And that's not what we want to send. We want to praise them for the effort, not the outcome. So sometimes at this stage, when a parent wants a child to eat, I don't know, X amount, like their sister, or, you know, a cup of whatever, because that's what the serving size says it is for a toddler. Sometimes when they take a taste, most parents get really excited in the beginning, but then if they're just taking tastes, it can be really hard to like step back and be like, oh, that's, that's progress. And if kids don't get the positive reinforcement, either through appropriate praise or attention without pressure, or if they don't get reinforcement by feeling better from the food, then it, the internal drive to eat is um, not strengthened. And so that's one thing we do. And again, you're going to want to talk to your medical team about the parameters here and what's safe. But what we do sometimes is when a child is really stuck at a low volume of eating, like they've tasting, they're tasting, they're like licking or tasting here, but they're doing, it, they're starting it and initiating it for the right reason, that internal drive but it's not making them feel good, we might play with their supplementation schedule just a little bit. So after they've done five tastes that they they didn't do a month ago, we might want them to feel better so that they understand the association between the five tastes and a little bit of um, feeling satiated by a tube-delivered bolus or a little bit of tube-delivered nutrition. And so uh, again, it's a real dance. So we can't exactly we can't tell you that that's the right thing to do for every child in every situation. But that is one strategy that we use with kids Mm -hmm. sometimes um, to help them feel better and strengthen that internal drive. They initiated is the difference. They Mm -hmm. felt it's not it's not the same as saying I'm going to let my child eat and I'm going to top them off. Why? Because because it might it's still adult directed that kind of preconceived protocol for feeding. Whereas if you're seeing whoa that effort was huge, regardless of the amount, I want them to feel better. 
because that, they that get a would, break. Yeah, they they should feel better and feel like ah, that was good. I it might have been minimal or negligible in terms of calories, but a lot of work for them. And so that's a that's mm-hmm. a therapy tool that we use um, in the weaning process in the intensive phase of weaning quite often. Um. Anything else about drives? Yeah, I think at this point too, this is where one of the sticking points is often trying to, and and it does fall in the division of responsibility for the adult to choose which food items. Yeah. But at this phase, we're needing to respect their fear and their anxiety and all those other things. And so at this point, we're offering a greater variety of food. This is not the time to control that everything they get is green and leafy and healthy in the traditional sense of the word. This is the point when we're letting them explore new tastes and flavors and trying to control what I, I think are really common places. We know that kids who get a variety of healthy foods younger actually do taste them later. And it's really good information to have that they need to be exposed to a lot of these things. But this is the time to let them guide the selections. Yes. If the it's, focus if is it's the, cookies, it's cookies. It's, exactly. The, if the focus, whether it's a cookie or quinoa, if the focus is on the internal drive to eat, if it's on the reason for eating, the quality of the interaction with food later, two, two phases up this pyramid, the thriving phase, that's when you can start worrying and thinking about nutrition. And the way that you do it, just as a little preview, the way that you do it is you make your decisions about nutrition at the grocery store, not at the table. Um, you Kids still should always have foods that are easy to eat and not at the way far end of their comfort zone. There mm-hmm. should be enough food to feel satisfied. But parents make their decisions um, at the grocery store when they're buying food, not through messaging at the table. Um, and we certainly don't want to skip internal drives to eat and push nutrition because it will it will make the skill development suffer. Um, there is a time and a place for that. It's just and the safety point. suffer. Yeah. yeah. Yes. True. Yeah. yeah. The, if you feel safe and the with safety food, and the interest, I will, right. Yeah. There's a couple of blogs. Um, I, I love Mealtime Hostage, um, and this is a mom of a very picky eater, and and the messaging that she gives her child over and over again, and this is also one that's in the Extreme Picky Eating book. Mm-hmm. Um, I will make sure there's something safe for you. Yeah. It is my job as the parent that there will be something that feels safe for you at the table. Yeah. And it doesn't and, have and that's to just be restful. Right. It is restful. And every child, especially new fragile eater, deserves to have that safety, deserves to know that that needs being met by the person who just built trust around food. Um, yeah, I love that. So we'll, we'll be sure to link to them. And then um, Dr. Katja Rowell and Jenny McLaughlin's book, too, the picky eating book. And again, one. there will be time to build those food choices. You don't always have to offer only foods that don't have as much nutritional value. You can, you may be surprised on which ones your kids choose, mm-hmm. but when they do choose it, it's not our place to control it at this level of the game. This is discovering internal drives to eat. Yes. And then the ne- they get to get their input on a little more. Totally. Yes. This is when their voices start to matter. So the next phase is the supporting skill development. So everybody's always surprised to see that the supporting skill development phase comes here almost at the top. It's almost the last thing that gets addressed. And most people that come to us have been working on skills 
since way before they did the first phase on this pyramid, first do no harm, and with frustrating results. And this is why, because it belongs after these other things. So the most common sticking point for supporting skill development is the order in which you do it. That there has to be meaning, internal drive, and trust before there can be tongue lateralization or chewing or sucking on a straw or any of those things that you may be talking about in therapy, all of which, by the way, are super important things. We, we don't want to downplay their importance. But what we find is if you work on skills, if you work on um, the foundations of eating, responsive family mealtimes, trust, internal drives, that the skills come along much more naturally much more quickly. And there's still help. Sometimes help is still needed to support those skills. But that it's really, for me as a therapist, was always surprising way back when, when we started doing it this way, how quickly mm-hmm. skills that had been worked on, you know, forever just popped into place with just a little bit of support um, because things happened in the right order. So that's the biggest one here, wouldn't you say, Heidi, skill-wise? Mm-hmm. I would. And I think Back when I was interviewing with you and the first patient I was working with that came to you and you put these things in order for me, um, I was surprised by that. But then it made complete and utter sense because most kids learn to eat by eating. They don't do exercise. And that piece always felt wrong to me Yeah, um, that you would do all these exercises, that it didn't feel natural, that why did most kids not need these exercises. You don't do exercises to learn to eat. And what I didn't realize is that was because we were doing it in the wrong order that I think you're right, Jenny, we're working on um, a a tool to measure this skill development with our kids. And we're doing it with all the kids that go through our weaning program. And what we're seeing is that um, the kids can just zoom through a lot of the skills that they've been working on for months, sometimes years. I'm thinking of one little girl who, had been doing oral motor exercises for four years. And the mm-hmm. only thing that happened is she lost straw drinking mm-hmm. in that period. She didn't get any better at chewing. She didn't get any better at drinking. She lost the straw drinking that she had had. And within 10 days of treatment after doing this in the right order, she actually, she still needed help with chewing. She had some motor developmental difficulties that made it difficult for her in the same way that it made it difficult for her to tie her shoes and put on a coat and learn to write her name, you know, all those different things. But she really made a considerable amount of progress within the first month because she was trusting and on board and interested in doing it where she hadn't been before. Yeah. And actually the research in motor development supports this notion time and time again, that if the drive is internal, if the activity is natural, if it's part of the child's routine and they're initiating the motor plan, the movement, whatever the thing is, they're reaching for the food and putting it in their mouth or the opening of their mouth, then the skill development happens more rapidly across development. We see this again and again in the research. And so the most common trick here is that what happens sometimes is that people say, well, their, their oral motor skills are messed up, if you will, or like they're not doing it in the order we want them to happen or their tongue isn't moving enough. Well, of course it's not. They're tube dependent. And there might be some other reasons why it's not. But what we see then is then this this kind of offshoot where people start working on the tongue or the mouth or the skill without the rest of the body, without the rest of the person. And so the, the biggest trick here is skills should be worked on and are worked on best 
if they're done in the presence of a mealtime and their child directed. So that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that a child might not need some strategies. That doesn't mean that a child might not need some help developing a certain movement with their mouth or posture with their body or reaching for the spoon, whatever the case may be. They may, they may have a motor deficit that causes them to really need that support. But that doesn't mean it should happen outside of the meal. That doesn't mean that it should happen in an artificial way. Um, or a, a contrived way. So and I, I do think, yeah, I totally agree. And I think the one other thing, and it falls along the same lines, is when people feel like they're getting stuck in skill development. I think there's probably two other things that come up is number one, expecting them to go too fast, mm-hmm. that they need to, um, I think Jenny, you always say really well that stability comes before flexibility, mm-hmm. that you need to be really good at one thing and feel comfortable with it. Some kids go faster than others. Some kids are able to do it within a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Some kids, a couple of months mm-hmm. of being stable at their preferred safe foods before they're able to branch out and learn new ones. Um, and I we, think the other place where people get stuck here um, is not offering enough variety. So it's a dance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, once they are stable, we need to remember that we need to start offering thicker purees um, or so reading their stability and making sure that we're providing the right foods at the right times, I think yeah. is a very common sticking place. So true. So this next level of the pyramid is where it's all, what it's all about. The next level of the pyramid is thriving. If this is where you have a child that's able to participate in mealtimes, they're enjoying food, the family meals become much more manageable and the, to get the togetherness is the focus. Um, and that children are eating enough because of their own internal drives to grow and gain appropriately and develop. So the truth is, is that if you've done all these other levels and you've really spent time there, this top phase is most people don't get caught up here, but where, when there is a kind of bump in the road in this phase on the pyramid, it tends to follow common bumps in the road with feeding kids that don't have a history of tube dependency. So things like, a, a transition of caregivers, you know, you went from being a, a state that, you know, your child was home with you as an infant. And now as a toddler, they're transitioning into a daycare environment and they're just not used to that food or that caregiver and they may eat differently or be practicing different approaches. And so that's a place where it might help to step back and look at the pyramid um, and figure out where things kind of went awry during the transition, if it doesn't go away on its own. Another common one that we talked about is illness. You know, some kids do get sick, and if they got sick and it challenged their relationship with food, like stomach stomach bugs, for example, that food feels yucky when you have a stomach bug. And for kids that have a complicated relationship with food occasionally, that's that's terrifying for a parent to see a kid that didn't used to like to eat to get a stomach bug and then not bounce right back to gobbling down their food. <laughs> It's scary. Um, And so keeping in mind at this level that for most kids across the board, there are things that challenge their ability to eat well, that no child eats their best or even their, their most average meal all the time. In the course of 10 days, two days are probably going to be pretty crappy looking when it comes to food and eating. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, excuse my language, but I think that that's true. I think, you know, it, there isn't Childhood is marked by variability. They do different things on different days. And so we really need to look at long chunks of time, like weeks or months, and what our children are doing versus kind of those Mm -hmm. microcosms of meals and days. And remembering that 
kids do things differently at different stages of development. So many kids do go through a period in early childhood of being suspicious of food. It comes around toddler preschool age. Many kids who haven't had feeding tubes, don't have feeding challenges, have been going along just fine, do go through a period of suspicion Mm -hmm. and they become much more um, selective of which foods that they will eat. And that's, that's common. That doesn't mean that things are going backwards. That means that they're just like everybody else. Um, yeah. But it, it's helpful to remember that that's a normal stage it is. and not a problem. And looking at the pyramid, but not having to start all the way back at the bottom for everything. But if the new thing that you offered, like a crunchable food or a mixed texture food, like, you know, if they were having purees or soft solids, and now you had to introduce, you know, a, a mixed texture food or a sandwich or something that's much mm-hmm. more complex because it has different things that you have to do with your mouth or meats or things. Well, then don't, don't don't recreate the wheel with everything you're doing. But with that one thing, take a step back mm-hmm. and think how with the sandwich, how with the new Crunchable that they aren't really comfortable with, can I first do no harm, build trust, create responsive family mealtimes around that food, Disco- help them discover internal drives to eat it and support their skill development. Go right back through the pyramid for that problem that you're having. Um, mm-hmm. Because we find that if you step back and go right back to the beginning, um, most people can get themselves back on track. And if you can't, it's okay. There's help available. And I think remembering too, that kids' personalities and adults' personalities play a role in Mm -hmm. all of these things. So if you're an anxious kiddo, Mm -hmm. you are maybe going to have some bumps in the road when you go to new places. And so eating may drop down a little bit. That doesn't say as much about the eating as it does about your young one's personality. And so making sure that if there's someone who's anxious, that you're providing the appropriate supports and expecting the right things around mealtimes, the same as you would for everything else. Mm -hmm. If there's someone who's going to be anxious with transitions on the first day of school, make sure that their foods are some of their favorites or you have visited the cafeteria and they know what the expectations are going to be. Um, Just providing the appropriate supports around mealtime that you would for everything else, because personalities play as much or a bigger role around food as they would, um, as, as they impact other parts of life. Cause food is so personal. Yeah. And so in this thriving phase where we've reached the, the pinnacle of this pyramid, <clears throat> it's good to remember that these things happen. They're normal for every kids. They can be exaggerated for kids that have had a complicated history with food. But the majority of the time, when you get to the top of the pyramid, when you've worked on the things at the bottom of the pyramid first and spent time there, life meals, life is marked by ease. Um, and that's what we want for everybody. <laughs> and it's possible. It does happen. And this is the way out. Um, so I hope that that was helpful for everybody. We are going to link again to the Division of Responsibility, to some of those sites like Mealtime Hostage and that great book that we mentioned. Uh, also some conversation starters in our show notes. So be sure to check those out on our blog at thrivewithspectrum.com. And we'll be back next week. Have a great one, Heidi. Bye, guys. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table podcast. Every week, we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook. We can be found at Thrive with Spectrum. And on Twitter, you can find us at Thrive with SP. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week.